Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chabruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Sukkah, daf Nun Aleph, page 51. If you have not signed up for our Siyum yet, please sign up and join us, God willing, uh, this Sunday, August, uh, August 29th uh, at 9.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time and at 4.30 uh, p.m. in uh, Israel. Uh, we have a great speaker from Naud Kedumim, Ellie Waller, and uh, we hope to see uh, many of you join us. We know it's a little bit of a crazy time of year, uh, but we definitely wanted to uh, celebrate the finishing of this Masachet together. Um, this staff has uh, what I consider to be one of the more famous Mishnahs that I think appears, which describes the Simchas Beis HaShoeva celebration. But before Anne gets to that Mishnah, I just wanted to read this very interesting passage that's at the top of the daf. And the Gemara here is talking about this um, this machlokas that we had on the previous page between Rabbi Yossi Bar Yehuda and the rabbis about whether or not the flute, uh, the Khalil overrides Shabbat and the you know and the holidays, um, and that's based on what the significance of the role of song is, right? Shira, or is it the instrument when we do the avoda, when we do the sacrifices? And so it starts as following Kidditanya, right? Uh, so this is a machlokas of the Tanaim. Tanya, right? We have a brisa uh, here. Abde Kohanim Hayud Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir says that the temple musicians were slaves of priests. Rabbi Yosef Omer Mishpachad Beit Garim Mishpachad Beit Siparia Hayud. And Rabbi Yosi says that they were a family. They were Israelite families from the house of Hapragrim and the house of Tsipraya, um, and they were from this particular city of Emamum, um, um, and that but their lineage was good enough that their daughters could marry into the priesthood. So, you know, Rabbi Meir, in a way, is saying they're slaves. Rabbi Yossi is saying, no, these came from, like, distinguished families. Then, then we have Rabbi Hanina ben Antigonus. Um, I always wondered if he's also the son of Antigonus Isoko, who we, I think we talked about a little while ago. He says, Levim Hayu. He says, no, these were actually Levim. My love, Hakam Maflige. So what is it that they're all disagreeing about here? Demand Amar Abadim Hayu, The one who says that they were slaves holds that the essence of, of, of the Shira is what was sung with the mouth, right? That the instrumental music is just accompaniment and therefore it's something that could be done by slaves, right? But if it was really part of the aboda, how could you let it be done by slaves? But the ones who hold that the musicians were Levian obviously hold that the ikar of the shira of the aboda had to be the musical instrument and therefore it had to be done by the Levian whose job was to provide the shira, to provide the song in the avoda, and therefore they did it by singing, but more importantly, they did it by playing those musical instruments. Then the Gemara goes on, Sabra, how do you understand it this way? Rabbi Yossi, my Kesavar, what does Rabbi Yossi hold? If Rabbi Yossi holds that uh, the essence of the song, you know, Shira is with the mouth, right? Then even slaves, they can play instruments. Levim in Yisraelim low. So then how could Rabbi Yossi, right? Then how could he hold it? If it has to be by instruments, he should have said Levim, um, but not Yisraelim. And remember, he said that actually 
uh, it was played by these distinguished families in, uh, you know, th- these distinguished Israelite families. So it doesn't make sense that he could tell Ikar Shira Bepeh. His answer doesn't sort of fit into either one. Ella Dekule Amar Ikar Shira Bepeh. So rather we say everybody agrees. Again, back to this original Machlokas that we saw yesterday, that the essence is the singing that was done with the mouth. And what are they arguing about? Right? That one person holds that literally this means the event took place in this manner, right? They're just saying that the slaves played the instrument. And one holds that the event took place in this manner, that the Israelite families, right? They, you know, of these distinguished families, they played the instruments. And so then the question is, so what's the practical halachic difference if one group played it or a different group played it? So in other words, both of these two opinions, right, that we first talked about at the top of the page, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi, they have to hold that obviously it's Ikar Ishira, and therefore these two non-Levium groups were allowed to play the instruments. But the question is, why do they have two different groups? Why does Rabbi Meir say it was these slaves? Why does Rabbi Yossi say it was these distinguished families? So the nafkamina is So it has to do with whether one elevates a, le- a levy from the platform. Uh, this is literally what it means to sort of to distinguish lineage, right? And whether or not they could receive maser. So the question basically is here is that if we say that it was a family who was distinguished, right? Or maybe they were a family that was eligible to get maser, Okay, based on maybe of a family member of an ancestor that they played a musical instrument in the in the temple. That's what that's really what the argument is about. Manda Amar Avadim, the one who said that they were slaves. So we're going to say they're slaves. We can't say that maybe they came from from a good lineage below the Maser, and therefore uh, they're also not going to be able to receive Maser. Umand Amar Yisrael Hayu, but the one who says that maybe. They were just a distinguished Israelite family, Kasabar, Ma'alim right? That you can sort of you that that they were, you know, an Israelite who sort of was elevated, right? That elevates uh, or 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 makes better the Levium, right? Because they sort of had this distinctive lineage of Alola Maser, but they can't receive tithes. So, in other words, this was like a category of Yisrael who like. They were very distinguished. They clearly aided or sort of somehow took on a role of a levy, but they're not a full levy, so they can't actually get maser. Uman to Amr Levim are you, but the one who says that they were actually Levim, Kasabar Malim Midukhin, yes, they had, it's a levy who elevates a levy, Bain Lihusin, Bain Lamaser, right? Whether it is by lineage and also that they can get tights. So I, this whole discussion about who actually did it, I think before I read this, I automatically assumed, of course, it had to be Levim who played the instrument. But here we actually see that there were three very different approaches. And not that they were only three different approaches, but that this had practical halakhic implication. The opinion of Rabbi Meir, that they're avadim, which means they're not, you know, these were just regular slaves, basically. And, and, and this wasn't sort of necessarily like a nice job to have. Then we have that in-between opinion of Rabbi Yossi, who basically says these were distinguished Israelite families, who kind of in a way sort of elevate, right? They, they have some connection to the Levium. They're not Levium though, they can't get Maser. And then finally, you know, we have that last opinion uh, of Rabbi Hanina ben Antigonus who says, no, they were actually Levium, 
which means these were distinguished Levium, they had good yichas, and also therefore um, they could, uh, you know, they could have uh, maser as well. Um, so very interesting discussion that I think really changes how we classically view how the music was done. You know, I think most of us have always believed the music was always done by Levium, and this Gemara really says something very different. So I think, like you, I think I was a little startled when I first saw that the this, uh, the implication, or the, I guess it's stated straight out, right? Avadim of the Levim, that it was the music was made by the slaves. That's a little bit disconcerting. But what I, despite the disconcerting, or what I appreciate, and I, I've we've now seen it through several masechta, this idea that there are groups of people or classes of people who do have training and talent and so on in various different fields. And I feel like for anybody in the modern era who thinks that, you know, Judaism, Judaism is a monolith and it's all about the Beit Midrash study, which we're obviously caring about and engaged in. But right, the idea that um, different populations within the Jewish world are geared to do different tasks, whether even within the Beit Midrash and, you know, all the more so perhaps outside of it, I think is a very important kind of underlying foundational message. And I like that piece that you picked up on, especially with the opinion of Rabbi Yossi, that it's very clear that sort of like there were families who at least were like trained in certain aspects of the, um, uh, you know, of the Avoda itself. Okay, I'm going to move now to the Mishnah, which is at the very end of, of Ahmed Aleph. And it's a long descriptive Mishnah, as we've seen where we have, we ha- seem to have these particularly long, particularly descriptive Mishnayot when it comes to Beit HaMikdash um, things, you know, whatever, details. Misha Lora, and this is details, some of the details here are very, very well known. Misha Lora Asimchat Beit HaShoeva, Lora Asimchat Anybody who did not see the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the joy of the Simchat Beit HaShoeva in the temple, never saw rejoicing, like never really saw rejoicing. There the, there's a number of statements on this stuff, that are these kind of a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, in terms of comparison, like we have, you know, the pinnacle of whichever experience it is. uh, And anybody who didn't experience that, it's as if they never experienced this at all. And so none of us listening or talking now, right now, um, truly ever experienced the the, the Simcha in our day because we weren't ever there for the Simcha Beit HaShoeva. So here's how it worked, like the procedure of the of the events. So after Yantif was over, meaning that first day of Yantif, then the Kohanim and the Levim would go down. Um, so they would go from the 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 Kohanim and the Levim would go from the Ezrat Israel, <coughs> excuse me, to the Ezrat Nashim. At the Ezrat Nashim, they would introduce Tikkun Gadol. They would do some significant repair, which the Gemara is going to go into, except for we're not going to so much talk about it today. And then at the there, you know, there was Menorah Shal Zahav Hayusham. The Menorot were there. The Arbas Falim Shal Zahav Brosheham. And they had these four basins, right, that were made of gold that were at the top or next to really each of the Menorot, each of the Menorahs, whatever. Each of them had a ladder. And they were, so from with these ladders, there were four children who were from the Kohanim. They were trainees, really, right? 
CITs, no, meaning um, Kohanaman training. And what they did was that they would have pitchers. These pitchers held the amount of 120 log, this volume of oil, and then they would pour from that oil into each of the little, I guess, basins, whatever. Um, they're not so little, into each of the basins that were mentioned just above. Okay, so then, So what they would do is that they would take from the clothing, from the Kohanim, the white mechnasayim, the, the, I guess, trousers, right? They all had this kind of long cloak that they would wear, but then they also had these white, um, I don't know, pantaloons, something, maybe not quite that wide, right, that they would wear, and but then when they would wear out, what would they do with them? They would take those pants and they would tear them, and also their belts, they would tear them to use them as wicks so that they could use them to light the menorot, to light the um, candles there, right? And then... Um, so they would light those menorot, and then that light from them was so bright that there was no courtyard. It says there's no courtyard in Jerusalem that wasn't lit up by the light that was coming from the menorah at the time, uh, you know, in the Beit Hamikdash, but at the time of the Simcha Beit Shoeva. So the mission continues. So the people who are righteous and pack and pious and apparently activists, whatever, they would dance before all of the people who would come to this celebration. How? But Avukotshul or should be dehen. They had these flaming torches. And they would say songs of praise and also praise. The Levim who are these musicians, right? And they would have, they would have um, well, now I guess we'd call them violins, right? But perhaps then they were lyres and harps and so, cymbals and trumpets. Meaning, whatever musical instrument you could think of, it would be in attendance. And here we do have the stairs, meaning there's 15 stairs. From the um, from the Ezra Israel to the Ezra Nashim, and each one of these fifteen stairs corresponds to the fifteen Mizmoritzilim, the passages in Tehillim that begin Shir Hamaalot. Right, that there are fifteen such passages. The most famous of which, for us in our day, is the one that we recited at the beginning of Berkat Hamazon. And the Levim would array themselves on these fifteen stairs um, steps, I guess, to sing the Shir of. The, whichever this year was going to be. Um, they brought their musical instruments and they said, Shira. Now we are still in the Mishnah, believe it or not. This is the Nisu Chamaim. So the two Kohanim would stand at the, at the upper gate and then that would go down from the Ezrat Yisrael to the Ezrat Nashim. They would have two trumpets with them. So when Karahagever is the expression that means uh, when the when the cock crows, when the rooster would crow in the morning or at dawn, really. So then they would blow on their chatzotrot, they would blow um tekia, that's the long, simple blast, and then the heriu, and they would sound a trua, which is the broken 
Lesson then again the Tekiah. Higiu lemaala asirit, taku veiru vitaku, higiu lazara, taku veiru vitaku. And then each, so when were they, when when else did it mean they blew the shofar, not shofar, sorry, chatzotrot, at the beginning. And then when they got to the place where they would draw the water, which is at the 10th stair, then they would do it again. And then that's the, like the idea that now they're going to let everybody know that they're, it's time to draw the water. Um, and then when they get to the Ezra Nashim, where they're carrying water with them, then again, the trumpeters would blow again the tzikia and the trua and the tzikia. And then lastly, here in the in the Mishnah, as says a very long Mishnah, when they got to the ground, the Ezra Nashim, they would blow, they would keep going until they got to the gate that goes out to the east. Um so when they got to that gate, turning out to the east, they would turn themselves around and turn towards the west. So let me take a step back and, and explain what's going on. Our forefathers, when they were in the same place, Right, they would put their backs to the heichal, to the backs to the to the basically to the temple, and their faces would be to the east, and they would bow down to the sun. But we turn to we would turn our eyes to Hashem. So Rabbi has another way of saying how they said this, but the point is the same. That there's this I I, I imagine that it's a rebuke. To anybody who's dealing with a more, I don't know what, earthy religion that was available amongst the sanitarianism at the time. And the mission says straight out, well, yes, fine, there were people who would worship the sun, but we know better. And we treated everything only in the service of God in terms of turning to God and bowing down. Now, there's the end of the Mishnah. I do have a couple of comments from the Yardin, from the Gemara, but Yardin, I want to ask you if you wanted to comment on the Mishnah before I jump to them. No, I mean, this is a very, very famous Mishnah that, you know, people often quote that really, I think, beautifully describes something that was done, you know, in the Beit HaMikdash. Yeah, <laughs> the part that I know the best is that comparison at the beginning of just how how joyous was the Beit HaMikdash, uh, the and that signal, that style of speech, as I said before, is what shows up, again, throughout much of the Gemara on this stuff, uh, on this mission, rather, Tanra Banan, so the, the Gemara quotes a Brita that has that same first line from the Mishnah, and then it goes on to say that somebody, anybody who didn't see, one who has not seen Jerusalem in all of its glory, never saw a beautiful city. One who did not see the temple, when it was standing, never saw a truly magnificent structure in terms of a building. So then the question is, well, you know, we know about these two different Bate Mikdash that were destroyed. Which is the building that's supposed to be this stupendous building? And so the answer is that this is the building of Herod, Hordus, the king, who was not really such a laudatory king in other ways, but one of his major projects was kind of uh, he did a good amount of building, but he also did a good amount of shoring up of structures that were already there. And that is really what's happened with the second temple 
Hordus basically, you know, was the renovation crew. Um, Ligamar talks about his renovation. Fine, we're going to jump a bit. And it says, again, another one of these big, you know, big time hyperbolic comparisons. Tani Rebihuda Omer, Mishalora'a Duplostone. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this. It's, it's, uh, I assume it's Greek. Duplostone, Shell Alexandria, Shell Mitzrayim, Lora'a Bechvodan, Shell Yisrael. So if you've never seen the great synagogue, this Diflostone that I don't know how to pronounce, of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, never saw the glory of Israel. Meaning that's how beautiful and stupendous this uh, particular synagogue was. And then it describes exactly just how wonderful the synagogue was, and it was known to be truly huge. Um, Okay. And, okay, there's a very nice story here about Alexander. Yordana, maybe you'll want to talk about it, but I just want to get to one point at the very end of our uh, daf here, which talks about the women, because we talked about this Ezrat Israel to Ezrat Nashim, and we should be careful to note that Ezrat Nashim nowadays means the women's section of a synagogue. Ezrat Nashim at that time in the Beit HaMikdash means the area as you move from the outside of the walls to the temple inwards, and the most inner part, of course, is the Kodesh Kodeshim. You move inwards, it doesn't mean that only it's only reserved for the women. It means that the women could be in that in that part, in that big area of the Beit Hamikdash, but they could not go further in. The going for leaving the Ezra Nashim to go further into the Ezra Israel was prohibited. Of course, the men could, you know, those who could go to Ezra Israel could go back and forth to Ezra Nashim, which, of course, is the basis of the discussion of the Mishnah. So here we've got a bright ton of so initially what they did was that they had the women stand on the inside of the Ezra Nashim, and they were closer to the Hechal itself, and the men were outside in the courtyard. Um, and then what happened is that they would come to conduct themselves. Kalut um, Rosh, I guess, is translated as a, in a light kind of way, but I think here the implication is you know, in a loose kind of way that they weren't, they didn't take it serious. They didn't take things seriously. And then things like, you know, a mild flirtation would go too far. This business with the men and the women on the, on the, in this separated kind of ways, it ended inappropriate. Men had to be closer to Mizbeach without passing through the women, where the women were. Um, so, so the women would sit outside and the men would sit on the inside it didn't help that much. Right? You put men and women in that close proximity. Um, there was some amount of let's call it that. So then they kind of reconstructed so that the women would sit up and the men would sit on the um, lower down, and that worked um, to begin as a as a manner of separating the sexes long enough to be serious enough for the time that they needed to be serious during these proceedings of the Simcha Beit Well, I don't know if it was just the Simcha Beit I think it's throughout, but that the Simcha Beit time is known to be the source of this idea of separating men and women for, you know, for certain activities, specifically davening and so on. I, you know, this is a nice page of Gemara. I especially appreciate the pieces about, you know, recognizing the beauty of the Beit HaMikdash, and that specifically was the Beit HaMikdash built by Herod. Also that description of the shul in Alexandria, but then they sort of want to be like, but don't think it was too beautiful because a bad thing happens in our community. Um, it's just visually a very rich daf. That's our daf discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. 
Thank you to Robin and Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.